0: Welcome to The Meeting Room, a place to gather and discuss all things relating to meat safety, quality, and production. In the last week in the United States, over 650,000 cattle, 2.4 million hogs, and 35,000 sheep were harvested. In the news this week, Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts has promoted Beef Month in the state, and the State Beef Council is once again doing the Good Life Great Steaks promotion. The Beef Passport encourages people to dine at over 40 participating restaurants around the state that serve dishes that feature beef. The Minnesota Department of Ag announced that it has awarded 15 grants to small and mid-sized processors in the state. The grants ranged in size from around $13,000 to $100,000 and were used to install rail systems, buy smokehouses, fix coolers, and add packaging equipment, among other things. The University of Wisconsin-Madison is hosting a a two-and-a-half-day meat snacks short course from June 7 to 9. The course will provide a deeper understanding of the science and safety that goes into producing meat snacks. Registration is open to 50 people with experience within the processing industry, and it costs just over $1,100 per person. Welcome to The Meeting Room. My name is Brianna Boozman, and this week I'm wishing you a very happy start to Beef Month. The month of May is Beef Month, and so this week we're going to do a bit of a dive into all things beef. So, uh, going back a little ways and just thinking about when the beef industry started in the United States, um, according to an article by Oregon State University... Cattle were first brought to the United States in around 1493, when Columbus came on his second voyage to the New World. Uh, So from there, they were brought down into Mexico, and eventually the cattle made their way across the United States. And Angus cattle, which is, I'm going to say it's what I'm partial to. Some of you listening may not care so much about Angus cattle, but I did have to include them in here. Um, That's what my family raises, so it's what I, I grew up being around. But they were first brought to the United States in 1873. And when this happened, a guy named George Grant from Kansas imported four Angus bulls from Scotland and brought them into Kansas. And according to the American Angus Association page, at the time, the Angus breed were kind of considered freaks, which, um, to me, is funny because now, I mean, I hear about them as the business breed. Again, they were something that I grew up with. Um, and so, I've, I've been around a lot. And obviously, they're ones that, when you're in the industry, they're the ones that you hear the best things about. But even programs like Certified Angus Beef, you know, it's, it's a great program that has had a lot of marketing with it. And when people hear Angus in the breed, uh, when they are purchasing product they associate it with a high quality product. And so knowing that at one point the Angus breed was really considered freaks because they were uh, different than the cattle that had originally been brought into the United States. And they were different because they were solid black in color and they were naturally pulled, which means that they didn't have horns. And this was non-traditional to um, what the cattle that had originally been brought into the States looked like and so they weren't necessarily well thought of uh, right off the bat. However, uh, those bulls that were brought in, they were crossed with longhorns and produced cattle that were hornless, so they were pulled, and uh, they still did well on range. So um, they had that kind of hybrid vigor of the two different breeds um, that made them a durable breed, as well as one that maybe was a little bit easier to work with, Um, especially if you think about some of the technology and that sort of thing, at that time was uh, very, very different than what we have now. And so having something that was uh, naturally without horns made life a lot easier for those producers at the time. So in total, about 1,200 Angus cattle were imported into the United States, and in 2019, there were over 304,000 registered Angus cattle um, accounted for in the States. And so um, those are just those that are registered, so obviously a lot more out there than that. Um, Definitely one of the biggest breeds in the nation, and so kind of interesting just hearing where they got started. So even earlier than when those uh, first Angus bulls were brought into the U.S., jumping back a little ways to 1827, Chicago opened the first slaughterhouse, and um, this was following a time of urbanization, um, industrial revolution, and a lot of uh, mechanization that was happening, and at this point, they were making meat processing more efficient. Um, Still nothing like it is today, but um, very efficient by that day's standards, and if I will put in a little caveat of if you're interested in a episode that's really, really focused on the history of the meat industry, and it talks more in depth about this, scroll back a ways um, to episode nine, which was back in May of uh, 2021, so just a year ago, and it goes a little more in depth about the history of the meat industry, and the Chicago slaughterhouses are talked about a lot more, but... Anyway, it's a big thing for the beef industry that these slaughterhouses and really um, a packing industry was established. And in the 1800s, the Union Stockyards in Chicago became that major marketing facility. Um, It was known as the hog butcher of the world. But in addition to hogs, cattle, sheep, and whatnot, um, were brought into this area to be processed. Um, It was near livestock, it was uh, near labor, there was transportation by water and rail, and it was a great market for these products to go to. By the 1870s, so about that time when those Angus cattle were being brought into the United States, the stockyards were processing nearly 2 million animals a year. And by 1890, that number was nearly 9 million And at its peak in the early 1920s, the stockyards employed over 40,000 people, which is just crazy to see the growth and such that happened in that amount of time. Um, What really got some advancements in the beef industry and in the meat industry in general happened in 1877 when uh, Gustavus Swift brought in um, and electrified some of the production lines, as well as worked with an engineer to create the first refrigerated rail car. And so at the time, they were moving live cattle into these packing houses, but it was difficult to get then that product to places across the country. But once they found a way to refrigerate these rail cars, which started really just as air circulating over ice that was in the car um, before it got advanced into the more electrified um, state... This allowed meat then to be shipped across the country um, and then eventually to ports and being shipped across the world. And so, um, a pretty amazing thing just that the technology that refrigeration had on the industry. Um, So, that is kind of a a brief little bit about uh, the beef industry today. Um, Every week, as said in the introduction, there's hundreds of thousands of cattle that are harvested every single day, and that meat is being shipped around the United States. It's going to people here in the U.S. as, as well as feeding people around the world. In January of this year, there were over 30 million beef cattle within the United States, and so this doesn't include dairy cattle. I had a professor, I think it was in grad school, who would tell us that not all cattle are dairy cattle, but all cattle are beef cattle, um, meaning that though dairy cattle um, do go into the beef supply, their purpose for production is milk. And so oftentimes they are not included into the uh, beef cattle numbers when looking at numbers within the United States. Um, currently, nine states have more cattle than people, which includes South Dakota. Nebraska, Montana, North Dakota, Wyoming, Kansas, Idaho, Iowa, and Oklahoma. I have lived in three of those states, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Idaho, um, and I'm perfectly happy that they have more cattle than people. They're oftentimes easier to deal with, um, so good with that. But South Dakota has the highest cattle-to-person ratio, with about four head of cattle per person. As I said in the opening today, this week over 656,000 cattle were harvested in the United States, with an additional 7,000 calves or veal animals being harvested. And according to the USDA National Grading Percentage Report, of those harvested, 9.8% graded prime, 72.3% graded choice, and about 14.5% graded select. That doesn't totally add up to 100% um, as there is a few that maybe fall into an other category. And so this could include um, either those lower quality grades or that other category could include some that maybe weren't graded. Um, quality grading is not required. And so if there's some that um, maybe it comes in with a bruise or something that has to be removed um or if there's some color discrepancies, that sort of thing, where it's not going to be used for those um, high-dollar retail cuts and the steaks that you're going to see at the grocery store, not all of those carcasses will be graded. Um, additionally, there are some plants that are um, specific for harvesting more cull animals, so older cows or bulls, and um, typically those... Cattle can still produce a very high-quality product, but because of their age, they are not able to fall into those high-quality grades like Choice and Prime. And so because of that, since they can't meet those specific standards, um, since most of that product is going to go into ground beef or into further processed products, a lot of those cattle aren't actually quality graded. Um, Quality grading is just done for a marketing standpoint. It gives you an expectation of how that product is going to taste, and it really works to create consistency. And so hopefully every single time you buy a choice steak or a primed steak, um, the goal with that is for it to be consistent, for it to taste the same, and for it to create a high-quality eating experience. And it also helps depict what the price of those cuts should be. And so since some of those older animals, the products from them um, aren't going to be marketed in that way, it doesn't make sense for them to be graded. So these numbers, um, when talking about the grading percentage, likely are coming from those younger um, like fed steers or fed heifers that um, were closer to that like 18 to 24 months of age. Um, So anyway, kind of jumping back into that. Of the 72% of all of those cattle that graded choice, 31% of those fall within the average or high choice category. So that means 31% of those um, meet the quality standard to fall into programs like Certified Angus Beef or Certified Hereford Beef. Almost all of those certified programs have a quality grade standard that they need to meet to be able to get that specific label. The majority of the time, that quality grade standard is average choice or higher. Uh, Nebraska currently produces the highest number of prime cattle at 11%, and Texas, on the other hand, um, has the lower uh, prime numbers at about 3.4%. And this likely has to do with breed of cattle, environmental differences, if you think of um, the environment of Nebraska, both climate um, as well as just like the topography, it's it's very different compared to or comparing Nebraska and Texas. Additionally, differences in diet between the two regions, all of those things can have a big impact on um, what that quality grade is going to be. Uh, Nebraska is relatively mild temperature. Um, it Sure, it can swing, but it's usually not too harsh, um, and it also has access to really high quality feeds, which can really help those prime numbers continue to grow. According to the National Daily Cattle and Beef Summary that is put out by the USDA, the average carcass weight for a steer was 924 pounds and a heifer was 886 pounds and these were, like, five-day averages from last week. And these numbers are really high, and those numbers do continue to go up as the live weights go up. And when I was in college, the number that I was often told when thinking about, like, average carcass weight for a beef animal was around 850 pounds. And I, in my job and, um, and some uh, just some side things that I get to do, I get to spend a lot of time in packing plants, which is really fun. It's one of my favorite parts of my job. But it has not been uncommon for me to see carcasses that are well over a thousand pounds. And one thing that's interesting with this is a lot of folks can continue to think that the bigger cattle are better. There's definitely advantages to that, and um, you know if if the price and stuff shakes out, it makes sense. However. When we're getting these really, really big carcasses, we also get really big ribeye sizes, which is good, except that typically if you go to a steakhouse, the steaks are gonna be sold by weight. And so if you have a ribeye that's 14 inches in surface area, you can cut it an inch and a half thick and meet that weight. But if you have one that's maybe 18 inches in surface area, it has to be cut thinner and it's not as eye appealing. And there's all those problems that we don't need to go into today. But additionally, packing plants weren't built for carcasses to be that big, um, and the infrastructure wasn't built for them to be that big. And so it's very interesting for me just to see some of those changes. And um, continuing in the meat industry, we, we do hear about just changes in technology and that sort of thing that occur to go alongside uh, these larger carcasses. And um, according to Beef Magazine, in 2021, the average deer carcass weights for the year were 888 pounds. So I said last week they were 924. That is considerably higher. Um, That's not necessarily the entire year average what it'll shake out to be, um, but could just be a high point in this season. Uh, The 888 pounds in 2021 was actually down from 2020. But it was still 23 pounds higher than the same time in 2019. And so if you think of that, we said this week uh, there were 656,000 cattle that were harvested just this week. And if they were on average 23 pounds heavier um, than just a couple years ago, that's an additional 15 million, sorry i got to double check my math, 656,000 times 23 15 million additional pounds of beef being produced from the same amount of cattle. So that that is substantial. Again, I those are tracks that I can go down and I just I think it's super super interesting to kind of compare all those trends and changes in that way, but I don't I don't need to go into that today. Let me see here. Nebraska is the number one state for cattle slaughter and the second leading state for beef exports. In 2021, the state exported over $1.8 billion of beef products, uh, with the European Union leading the state's exports. So that doesn't mean that the European Union um, is leading in uh, purchasing products from the United States, but just the specific to uh, Nebraska products. And so when we're producing all those, we have to have a place for it to go. In 2020, Brazil was actually the number one exporter of beef at over 5.5 billion pounds. Australia came in second at over 3.2 billion pounds, and the U.S. was third at over 2.9 billion pounds in exports. And as of March this year, the uh, top five countries that bought U.S. beef included South Korea, Japan, China, Mexico, and Canada. Um, Additionally, according to the U.S. Meat Export Federation, the export value per head of fed cattle in February was $445.95 per head. So that means every single animal in the United States, or beef animal that was harvested in the United States, had an export value of $445. So... Um, That's not necessarily saying that we're just going to export uh, certain cuts to other countries, but we can also get value in the exports from off-haul product and variety meats. Um, For a long time, and this isn't, I I don't think, I don't think this is necessarily the case right now, but for a long time, the off-haul and variety meats, things that maybe we wouldn't consume here in the United States um, or we don't process into byproducts here In the United States were what led exports and were what caused a lot of or drove a lot of that value. However um, there's a lot of work being done in other countries by people in the United States to increase the value of those products in other parts of the world. So introducing recipes um, using the higher quality products over um, in other countries, driving up the value for those products, creating more demand, um, and creating markets for those products to be sold. And um, again, though those variety meats, the off all, those are things. So if we think, I know this is all beef focused, but if we think about like pork, pork tongues, and um, I was in a packing plant once and they had boxes of pork tongues, they had boxes of ovaries. They had boxes of like three inch pieces of um, esophagus, that sort of thing, that all of those things were going to be exported. I don't know what they were going to do with them (laughs) once they got them there, but it's, it's just pretty amazing to think about all of the value that can come from those animals and all of the products that we can get from them that aren't just the traditional steak and ground beef and that sort of thing. And with that, I mean, it always just amazes me that cattle can take a very low quality forage. Um, They can take acres and acres of land that is not suitable for us to grow crops. It's not suitable, you know, for rural or urban development. There's not really much that can be done there except for livestock to graze. And they're able to take that uh, low quality that low-quality diet, and turn it into a really fantastic source of protein um, that has 10 essential nutrients, that um, is relatively low-calorie for the protein that you're able to get, and it it provides an incredible nutritious source of protein for people here in the United States and around the the world, Um, and in addition to that, it provides products that we can use really in all aspects of our lives. From sports equipment to medical supplies uh, to leather products to adhesives and asphalt to chewing gum. The beef industry has a huge impact on our lives in really every sector of our lives as well. And the beef industry here in the United States is big and it has an impact worldwide. And I'm just really thankful to be a part of it. And I look forward to celebrating Beef Month with a lot of my favorite beef dishes, whether that be a steak, um, or a hamburger, or honestly, um, my favorite cut is the hanging tender, which is something that you do, you're not often going to see in grocery stores. Honestly, the only reason I've ever had it is from spending some time working, like, in the meat lab in grad school, and, um, we would buy that cut, the grad students, or we would get to have that from our research projects. But the hanging tender is also known as the butcher's cut, because back in the day, it was a cut that the butcher could take home to their family, and nobody <laughs> nobody would know it was missing. But it comes from the diaphragm muscle, and you don't often see it in grocery stores. But if you do ever get the chance to buy a hanger steak Or if you get your own beef butchered, ask your locker if they will keep that for you. And I personally just think it's really, really good and not something that you get very often. So that's how I'm going to be uh, celebrating Beef Month. And I hope that you take some time uh, to celebrate it as well. It's a good excuse to grill up some steaks. Even if it's uh, not a celebration, just throw out um, some ribeyes or some T-bones and enjoy them with your family. So anyway, have a very happy Beef Month, and thank you for joining me this week in the meeting room, and I look forward to visiting with you again soon. The views, information, or opinions expressed in the meeting room are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent those of their employers, including the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and others.